0: Before I forget, yeah, anybody need a Bible? We have Bibles available to look on, look in. Yeah, before I forget, we have these handouts. If you didn't get one of these, there's some on the little knee wall there where Justin is standing. And these are uh, just updates from short-term missionaries, getting some feedback here. I know you're working on it. Yeah, Genesis chapter 3. And uh, we're going to take a deeper dive into a few verses of Scripture this morning. I just want to remind you why we're in the book of Genesis for a few reasons. Number one, to get better acquainted with the Old Testament. Uh, Number two, to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And by God's grace, he'll become real evident to us here this morning here in Genesis chapter three. And number three, to be assured that the God of the Old Testament is identical to the God of the New Testament. A lot of people see this bloodthirsty, raging, angry God in the Old Testament and a God of compassion and grace in the New Testament because Jesus is God and that's how he revealed himself. But I want to assure you or reassure you that God doesn't change. He is the same always and forever. In fact, there was an experience that Moses had where God passed by Moses in this interesting Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, but I'll just tell you that as God passed by Moses, he declared his name. He said, the Lord, the Lord, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God's primary nature. And so I want to reassure us of that. And we'll see it here in Genesis this morning. Uh, Today's message, I guess I'm going to call Growing in Grace. Growing in Grace. So we'll talk about that. Uh, But first, let's... Pick up the story where we read this last week, but um, Genesis chapter 3, if you're familiar with Genesis, um, Adam and Eve have been created by God, and they were given one simple command, uh, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The devil came and tempted them to disobey God, and they gave in. And it brought the ruin of mankind. And God graciously, by the way, here we are, we're just going to emphasize this this morning. God graciously came to them in their guilt, in their sin. He came to them, He initiated a conversation to draw them out, to be honest, to be open with Him about what they've done, and to get restored into fellowship with God. So we'll pick up the story here after God has this conversation and finds Adam and Eve hiding from him. If you remember, prior to sinning, the husband and the wife were naked. They lived unashamed in each other's presence. Uh, They had no sense of self-awareness. They were just completely God-centered and other-centered. After they Disobeyed, they became completely self centered. And God was last on their thoughts, or not primary, I should say. And so they attempted to cover up themselves, to kind of improve their appearance before God and to hide from each other. And it was horrible what sin had done to their marriage and to their relationship. So God enters in, he has a conversation kind of reveals and they admit some things. And so we'll pick it up at Genesis 3, verse 14. Now the Lord has the guilty parties all together. He's got the devil, he's got Adam and Eve, and he's having a conversation with them. And he says first to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Speaking to the creature itself. And now God speaks to the devil who used the creature, the snake, and he said, I will put enmity. What's enmity? Go ahead, anybody. What's enmity? Kind of an, un- we don't use that word often, do we? It's hatred. It's hatred, it's a disdain for each other. There's a mutual thing here. I will put a hatred, a disdain between you and the woman. Now, he's, God is talking to the serpent. He's talking to the devil, I should say, to Satan. He's talking to Satan. I will put hatred between you and the woman, and here it is, in between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to unpack that a little bit later. So let's move on. We'll come back to that later. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Sorry, i got to read this last part. excuse me, in the King James, because this is much more beautiful. Uh, For dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. So those are the consequences that Adam and Eve will now experience for the rest of their lives. Verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means life. Literally what it means. Eve means life. His wife is life. I just like saying that. Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Did you see that? God is talking and he's referring to himself as a plural being. This is God speaking. The man has become like one of us. This is one of the texts here in the beginning of the Bible that reveals to us that God exists in three persons Father, Son, and Spirit. The Lord God is speaking about among among himself. The Godhead is speaking. Become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life in Eden live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. First just a couple of words about the the consequence that God imposes on the woman and on the man. Uh, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, your conception, and pain you'll bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Um, So it's been observed that among all living creatures, uh, it's been observed that perhaps Uh, Women suffer, human women, suffer the most pain in childbirth than any other creature. (laughs) Um, I've delivered a lot of cows of their calves in my younger days. Uh, They would moan a little bit, but it didn't (laughs) I've also watched my children be born. And um, yeah, I'm talking to the choir here, to some of you who have been through this. I've also had a kidney stone or two or 12. (laughs) And they say that's as painful as giving birth. I have no idea. But it sure hurt a lot. Um, So, yeah, this is uh, part of the consequence of the fall. I think it means more than just childbirth. I think it has a, a meaning that, you know, raising your children just because of the nature, the disposition of the created woman taken from Adam's side, that part of him that, is sort of the seed of all the passion and the emotions that moms go through a greater sense of uh, challenge, (laughs) wanna say this properly, Uh, pain and sorrow in watching their kids uh, mature and go through the rise and fall in that maturity. Uh, They might feel it a little more acutely than the men. So this is, one of the things that uh, the woman has to deal with, that women now deal with. God also said, your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. Uh, That's not a real popular verse. (laughs) Um, I don't think that anything has changed in the relationship between the man and the woman. That is, when God first created Adam, he made Adam first and then he made the woman for the man. And so there was always this recognizable leadership in the equality of the man and the woman. There was a leader. The man was the head by virtue of being designed and created first. And I'm drawing from New Testament scriptures to know this. Uh, by the way, you know when you take this verse and Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God created them male and female... And then again in chapter 2, 7, he made the man first, and then he made the woman. When you take all those verses together, it it reveals to us that there is equality between the man and the woman, and there's diversity. But we also know from the greater context of the Bible that it reveals the Trinity. That um, this diversity in the equality Uh, reveals the Trinity, the Godhead himself. And Jesus made this very clear because when he came to earth, he said, I and the father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father, we're equal. And yet then Jesus would turn around and say, and yet I always do the things that he tells me to do, and I say the things he tells me to say. So he had, in a sense, even in his equality, he was submitted to the father. And Jesus, before departing, he told us about the Holy Spirit. He said, if you've seen, well, he didn't say that. He said, I will give you another comforter, one exactly like myself. So when I put all that together, I realized that God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they're equal, and yet there's a diversity in the Trinity. And this is one of the beauties that come out of of the creation of man and woman, and so I say all that to say that I, I, I believe that the woman, Eve, recognized Adam's place in their relationship, but now there's, there's trouble in that relationship. Now it's your desire. You will aspire to be the head. You will want to be the one who's the leader instead of your husband. And so it's bringing attention in the relationship that didn't already exist there. And then God said to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and eaten, cursed is the ground and toil, you shall eat it all the days of your life. Um, (laughs) I just want to be clear. Work is not bad. (laughs) It's the worker who is now bad. (laughs) Okay? In fact, work is good because God worked. We come to the end of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, and it said God finished His work. Human beings work because we're made in his image. It's our desire to to produce something or to be about uh, an occupation of some sort of vocation. And it's very good. And there's much delight in that. Adam is working. Working is good. Working is what humans do because we're made in God's image. Whatever your work is. It's now Adam who has corrupted himself through his disobedience. Now the worker is bad and that brings the problem. I see three things at least and the Adam now has to contend with the forces of nature that are not going to be cooperative to his agricultural processes. He's now gonna get a whole bunch of weeds, right? And a whole bunch of dryness or soil conditions, whatever. It's gonna make life hard for him. Adam also now has to contend with the forces of evil, which are working incessantly against him. That is, the devil has been judged, but he ain't going away. And so he has to contend with that as well. And then thirdly, and this is where we all relate to this. Actually, we all relate to the first two things. Adam has to contend with the force of evil that's inside of him. Which makes him say, I don't want to work. Work sucks. (laughs) I don't like working. I want to play video games, man. I just want to hang out, let my parents provide for me, even though I'm 44. (laughs) Get a job, bro. (laughs) Work is good. If you're made in God, we are made in God's image. And so... I don't know about you, but I don't think about that so often. And hopefully that'll change your perspective tomorrow morning. Well, maybe you're not working tomorrow because it's a holiday, right? Praise the Lord for holidays. But when you do go back to your assigned work, even if it's temporary, just approach it knowing that God worked and he's made me to work. And No matter what that job is, do it with all your heart. Do it with all your mind. Do it, do it really, really well. Show up on time and do what you're told to do without complaining and gossiping to your fellow workers. Because we have a different nature now that we're God's sons and daughters. And work is not a a problem. It's the worker who has the problem. Inside of me is that force of evil that says, that wants to kick against the work. It's looking for compensation that I'm not deserving of. Or recognition that I'm not deserving of. Or I get my priorities out of balance and I'm going to work because I'm looking, because it becomes my identity and I pour myself too much into work. Yeah, it's all there. (laughs) This is Adam, this is how he has to now go about his life and providing for his wife and his future family. It's gonna be a struggle. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you'll eat the herb of the field. You will eat. In the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. Verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam called his wife's name Eve. Now I made this point last week, but I want to reiterate it. You study carefully Adam's words, whether explicitly stated or implicitly stated. Adam talked about his wife. The moment that God brought his wife into his presence, he's like, whoa, <laughs> right? Whoa, man, at this at last, he talked about her. She, he recognized this beautiful Human that God had brought to be his, his bride, his lifelong partner. And then he talked to her. He told her what God had said. God had told Adam, don't eat of the tree. But when the serpent came, he said to Eve, he carried on that conversation, Eve told the serpent what God had told or what Adam had told her. So he talked about her, he talked to her. And then horrible, horrible, horrible. After they sin, God comes, as I told you, and he starts to draw them out and get them to repent. And the first thing God does, he says, Adam, where are you? And he said, it's the woman you gave me. He said that out loud and she heard it. He, he, taught, he talked against her. He, talked, he downgraded her. He was disrespectful to her. And those words, oh, they must have penetrated and stabbed her in the back and heart. It was horrible. This man who had, who had loved her so dearly and passionately, and they'd shared their bed together, and now he's just despising her almost of her. And it was all his own fault. He just passed the buck, as we said. But now, and I learned this from study, but now actually he gives her a name. He's actually never given her a name. We always think of Eve because that is her name, but prior to this moment in chapter 320, her name wasn't Eve. She was wife. He was husband. But now he names her. And now he talks for her. I want to tell you, brothers, And I want to tell all of us and remind us, what's it look like for a husband to rule over a wife? Well, here's a beautiful example. And I'll tell you four things that I see from Adam's words for Eve, to Eve here. And first of all, there's humility. It's the reverse of the horrible thing that he had said about her, against her earlier. And it it sort of indirectly acknowledges, if you will, that, dude, I screwed up, babe, I'm sorry. I I said it was all your fault. And now he's saying to her, you're Eve, right? there's, There's a humility aspect here. Secondly, but he's also hopeful. This is what it looks like for a man to rule over a woman a man who's humble, a man who's hopeful. Hopeful in what? He's hopeful in God's word for them. God said to this devil, You're the woman's seed and your seed, there's going to be offspring. And then he said to her again, in great sorrow, you're going to bring forth children. Adam heard that. And now he comes to her in this vulnerable moment and he says to her, babe, we're going to have kids you are the mother of all the living in the human history and from us will come children and I'm with you. And so he reaffirms her. There's a sense of hope based on God's word. Adam was taking heed to God's word and he was doing something about it in the way that he lived with his wife. Thirdly, he's supportive. In her God-given role to bring forth children and help in raising them. He's supportive, he's, he's declaring fourthly that he's committed to the relationship, all right? So that's what it looks like to rule over, that's not imposing, is it? Doesn't sound like it's demeaning and squishing and putting a woman under your thumb and walking all over her? Not at all. He's not competitive, he's committed. So praise the Lord. That's what. That's just a minor point, <laughs> truthfully. I mean it's an important point. It's good for us to hear. But it's not really what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you today about growing in grace. And I want to connect Genesis 3.15 to Genesis 3.21. Genesis 3.15 is God talking to the devil but when he talks to the devil he says some very interesting things that are a revelation a prophecy of Jesus Christ it is a prophecy of what Jesus will do 2000 years after this when he comes to earth and dies for sin to redeem man it's a prophecy and then i think it, it's connected deeply to genesis 3:21 where god made tunics of skin, and he clothed Adam and Eve. So I just want to say to you right up front, Adam and Eve were saved by grace, just like every other human being is saved. That is, saved out of sin and death and brought into a relationship, a living relationship with God. They were saved by grace, just like you and me. All right? What is grace? Well, it's that little 30 second prayer we say before we eat. (laughs) Right? No, grace is, by definition, kindness shown to another. That's Webster's. Grace is kindness shown to another. It means to be for someone. You're inclined to do good for the other. This is grace, it's to be kind. Show kindness. It's a verb. Grace is a verb. Uh, J.I. Packer said grace is the activity of God. God operating in love toward people. It it is verb. It's action. Something is expressed. It's not just I have a disposition of kindness. I'm doing something about it. I'm taking action to help improve or to make your life better. To live a little bit smoother, if you will. This is grace. That's what grace is. Right? So grace is being kind to another, toward another one. It's being for someone to be favorable. The activity of God operating in love toward people. Uh, James Strong says that grace is a divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. I love that. It's the divine influence. God's influence, his kindness and his love, his being for you, not against you. He is for us, not against us. It's his grace, that's his grace. God operating in love toward you. And that influence on my heart, which is the core of my being, it then has a reflection in in my life. It it changes the way I think and behave and speak. Makes me more gracious. All right, that's grace. Adam and Eve were saved by grace. God came to them in their sin. He initiated a conversation to redeem them, to restore them into relationship. As I said last week, after Adam and Eve fell, they didn't run to God and just confess everything. and say, oh, Lord, we we blew it. No, they, they ran from God. They hid. They were full of shame and guilt. Painful stuff that makes life complicated and brings depression and confusion and disillusionment. And we question even does God live? Why would he allow? Where were you? Well, I didn't eat the apple, you did. Well, sorry, was it an apple? I don't know. He came to them. That was God operating in love toward them, because he was for them. Not against them. Remember what God revealed to Moses as I read to you early? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering. That's his primary nature. God who is rich in mercy. Don't you love those statements? God is. Oh, God is what? Rich in mercy. Because of the great love that he has for us. By grace, you've been saved. Adam and Eve were saved by grace because God took an action to, to pull them out of this complicated darkness that had suddenly invaded their lives. Got it? To appreciate grace. Grace. To appreciate grace, we need to be real about what happened after they sinned. To appreciate grace, God not being against us, but operating in love toward us, we need to be clear about what happened to Adam and Eve after they disobeyed God. And there's four things that happened. Corruption, death, and captivity. Pastor Scott, you don't count very well. That's only three. (laughs) That's because death is spiritual and physical. Corruption. Adam and Eve became corrupt because of their disobedience. Now hear me out brothers and sisters. For us to appreciate God's love and grace toward us, we have to understand how amazing it is. They became corrupt. Every imaginable evil was possible in them. And I know that because by virtue of being a human, I've inherited that fallen nature. The original sin with Adam and Eve has passed to all men. And I know from personal humiliating experience that there is a monster inside of me. There is a manufacturing facility. I can make up bad stuff. I don't need inside influence. I don't need other materials. It just comes out of me. The thoughts... The evil, every imaginable thing, is possible. Jesus, who came from heaven, said very simply, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Paul said in Romans 1:29 to 29-32, listen to this dirty laundry list. Men who have rejected the truth of God as creator... In his right to rule over us, it says they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, paul. Do. they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Adam and Eve, after they fell, this was true of them. Total depravity of the human nature invaded their life. As Paul would say in Ephesians 2, right? Men are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are deceived, they're disobedient, they're desirous of every sort of unforbidden thing, and therefore they're deserving of God's judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2:4. To appreciate God's grace, we have to go through the harsh reality of who we are apart from Christ. Adam and Eve were apart from Christ because they were dead. That's my second point. God had promised them, if you disobey, you will die. Well, they ate. Did they physically die? No, not yet. God said that to Adam. Dust you are, dust you will return. You're going to get buried physically. But first, there's a spiritual death. Our willful moral choices that we make separate us from God's grace. It separates us from God. We're, we're spiritually dead. We're upside down in our world. Paul famously said, In Adam all die. In Christ shall all be made alive. Ephesians 2:1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And there you have both spiritual and physical. You're going to die. Talking to Eric before church started, right? He had a good friend who passed this week. Unexpectedly. Real involved in missions over in Nigeria and Kenya. Got malaria, came home June 15th, wasn't feeling well. 13 days later, he's in heaven. Shocking. Couldn't believe it. His wife, Karen, keeping us updated on his progress, which was declining. It wasn't progress. God bless her, very graciously keeping a lot of people updated on emails. Go to the phone in the morning, wonder how Ralph was doing. I couldn't believe it. Went in and I said, Joni, Ralph died. Whoa. He went to heaven. Ralph had a personal relationship. He experienced God's grace, the miracle of new birth. He had been separated. He was dead in his trespasses and sins, but he heard the gospel and he responded and he became a Christian. He was saved. And that's the other point. Death brings, uh, there's a physical aspect to it as well. And then thirdly, or fourthly, I guess I would say, there's captivity. This is not something we talk about a lot, but it needs to be included in our presentation of the gospel and how we need God's grace. Yes, there's corruption. Man is a sinner, and there is a spiritual and a physical death that comes with being a sinner, but there's also a sense of captivity, and it's very real, and it's very real. Captivity to the devil. I'm going to put a few scriptures on the screen for you here uh, to make my point. Captive means you're held under the control of the devil. It's a harsh reality. If you're not a Christian, you're held captive by the devil. (laughs) Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Uh, First verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. These are inspired scriptures that give us understanding of truth. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The next one, 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And then the last one, Acts 26, 18. Open their eyes, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Actually, I have one more, and this is Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, (laughs) that is release from captivity. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. One of the first indications that Jesus is God is when he came to earth, he started doing exorcisms. Demonic beings are spiritual beings. Humans are lower than spiritual beings. We have, we're we're finite, they're they're less finite. I'm getting into an area here that's somewhat mysterious. But the scriptures tell me that a, a human is less than an angel. And demons are fallen angels. They're angels who rebelled against God. But one of the indications that Jesus is God is when he came onto the scene, actually when he walked into the synagogue where he was, grew up in Nazareth, they handed him the Bible and he started reading. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives. To plain, proclaim liberty to the captives. He knew what he had come for. He knew what he was doing. The devil knew what he was doing. Actually, Jesus said that in Luke 4 after he'd come out of the wilderness where he'd been tempted by the devil. The devil came to Jesus himself. And he tempted him with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And one of those was he took him up into a high place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to the Son of God, I'll give you all those if you'll bow down and worship. And Jesus said, they ain't yours anyway. No, he didn't say that. There's no argument. He's holding the world captive. And he's trying to tempt Jesus to divert from going to the cross to set people free. And then Jesus, after reading there in the synagogue, he went about in his public ministry. Mary Magdalene. You ever heard of Mary Magdalene? Scriptures tell us, out of whom seven demons were cast out by the Lord. Throughout the Lord's ministry, as near as I can tell, there was at least seven explicit exorcisms, and there were others that were just like one. It doesn't tell us how many. He heals Peter's mother and Peter, Peter's mother-in-law, and it says afterwards it's evening. Knock comes on the door. Who is it? They open the door. The whole village had showed up. And people had brought their sick friends and those who were demon-possessed, and it says Jesus healed them all and he cast out demons out of many of them. You can't cast out a demon unless you have the power of God. The devil went after a young boy, threw him into the fire, tried to burn him to death, threw him into the water, tried to drown him to death. The Lord cast him out. There was a woman who lived in Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon. She heard about Jesus. He'd come into the area. She's like, Lord, help. My young daughter is at home severely demon-possessed. The Lord did it. Long-distance deliverance. He didn't even come and lay a hand on her. He said, go on home. Your daughter's healed. And she got home. Praise the Lord. She's in her right mind. I could go on and on. Probably the most famous is the man who lived in the tombs. That's my phone. Sorry, just stop that thing. Shame on that person for calling. <laughs> Remember the Lord's parting words of the man of the tombs? We had legion. We are many. Disciples are freaking out. The Lord's like, "Get out of there. Left the man. Lord's parting words to the man go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. It's a serious business, friends, this idea of captivity. The devil even infiltrated the Lord's disciples. Jesus starts telling to his disciples his main mission on earth is to be crucified buried and risen. And Peter objected. He said, never, that's never going to happen. And the Lord said, get behind me, Satan. And then, of course, the devil got into Judas himself. This is the reality of not being a Christian. It's what it is. Now comes grace. Now we see how precious grace is that Jesus would enter into our world. So John, Genesis 3.15, we'll just take a moment and look at this. because so I want to be sure we, we understand what God is saying about Jesus in these verses, in, these, in this verse, in these few words. This is God speaking to, the, to Satan. He says, I will put a... I will settle the issue. There will be a constant enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Interesting. Now, in, in the Bible, and it's true biologically, seed is in the man. It's called sperm. But he's not saying that. He, God bypasses the, the man, Adam, and he talks directly to the, about the woman. And so it, 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 there's implied there, and we know because Jesus came without the seed of a man that he was supernaturally born to Mary, incarnation, right? She was virgin, a pregnant virgin. It's the beauty of the gospel, right? And so there we see in even a, a faint indication that the Lord will be incarnated between your seed and her seed, or her offspring. Now seed could be, your Bible might say offspring, right? And so it's a comprehensive word. It it refers to uh, an individual, and it can refer to the followers of that individual or their offspring, right? Now devils or angels don't reproduce. Jesus taught us that in Matthew 22 right? Angels don't have, they're asexual, apparently. And so that helps me understand between, now this is the devil, God speaking to the devil. He said, between your seed. Now the devil's not going to have babies, right? Because they don't do that. Jesus revealed that to us. So it would indicate that it's his offspring, but he's, but it's singular. So he's sort of the leader of all these, those who follow him called demons, right? And the same would be true of her seed. It's speaking of, well, then he makes it singular, masculine singular, which is why in the last part of verse 15, he, that is her seed, this individual shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. There's going to be warfare between you, Satan, and my future Messiah, who's going to be born from a woman who is an individual masculine seed, but there's a whole lot of followers of him. This is God's grace being communicated to us here in Genesis. This is Jesus in Genesis. And this is the same God that we see throughout the Bible, even in the Revelation. He said, he shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. I find it interesting, by the way, just as a point of interest, uh, that when you come to Revelation 13 and you read about the Antichrist... The, the, this is future. This is future now. But we read about in Revelation about a future entity, a man, who is going to be empowered by the devil. It's true. hasn't happened yet, but it's true. And it says that he's going to receive a mortal wound to his head, and then he's going to live again. Now, isn't that interesting? In, in, in light of what God just said to the devil, he will bruise your head. So the future antichrist is going to come on the scene in complete mockery in defiance of what God said here in Genesis 3:15. He's going to get a mortal wound to his head, but he's going to appear to come back to life and he's go, "You will live forever, baby. God's wrong, I'm right." Fascinating. He will bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. How did the devil bruise Satan God's heel, Jesus' heel? I say this right? How did he bruise his heel? By your inspiring wicked men to do wicked things to the Son of God. Scribes and Pharisees. Isn't it interesting? Scribes and Pharisees heard about John the Baptist baptizing up by the Jordan. And John saw him coming. and he said, Oh, you offspring of vipers. <laughs> interesting John would say that of those men. And eventually, three years later, they would take Jesus and they would pluck the hair off of his, out of his beard off his face. They would spit on him put a covering over his head and beat him. They slandered him. and Tortured him. Evil men. That's how he's going to bruise your heel. The devil is going to inspire through betrayal. And then when Jesus is on the cross, there's going to be a death. Do you see how important the resurrection is? Because if Jesus doesn't rise from again, then the devil's won, and nobody gets set free. But Jesus rises again, and that's kind of the final blow, as we read in Hebrews 2.14. He conquered death, which was the devil's trump card. When Jesus rose again from the dead, he defeated death. And Satan's, his head, Has been bruised. Had in the Bible often refers to authority and power and leadership. He's he's spoiled you of all that. That's what the Messiah is going to do. That's grace. Okay? That's Genesis 3.15. Just want to be sure you're clear on that. That is the gospel in Genesis. And it's God prophesying of Jesus. And we can I could go into many scriptures to validate that is the Lord. When I take all that and I pair it together with 321, where it says, God made tunics of skin and clothed Adam and Eve. Now there also is a faint but clear picture, to me at least, of what happens to a person who responds to the gospel of grace God's not against me? Are you kidding me? No, he's for you. He's actually, he's actually going to come to set you free and to give you hope beyond the grave and to wash you from all the corrupt stuff that you've said and done and thought, to forgive you for all that. How's that? He's going to die for you. All your wrong is going to go on to him. And when we believe, he's going to give you all of his right. And the scriptures make it clear. Put off the old man and put on the new. That's where Paul gets at in Colossians. Put off that old man with his corruption and put on the new man which created in Christ Jesus. There's this clothing, if you will, this imparting of his grace and his nature that comes into our heart and mind. Isn't it interesting how beautiful that is? Adam and Eve... In their first response to their sin, they took fig leaves, they, they, they killed a plant, and they took this leaf and they put it around them. What's going to happen to the leaf? It's going to dry out, crack, wither, and they'll have to go do it again. <laughs> That's what we call works. That's what we call... Religious works to make myself appear good to God and I'm real happy with what I've done. I look good now I've got myself all covered up But you just got to keep doing it because that leaf is going to dry up and wither away and you're going to be exposed Again, and so you go and you do it again and again and again and you have a whole life of that and you burn out on religion The Lord killed an animal blood was shed Sort of a a sign of the atonement there, of his own atonement. And then he took that animal skin, one for him and one for her, and he clothed them. And now they're clothed in something that's not going to dry up and wither and have to be redone. And how beautiful that is. Now as they live their life, grace is with them. Grace is with them. This is the way Paul would finish every one of his letters. Grace be with you. And he would begin every letter by saying, grace to you. Because Paul understood that he's writing to Christians who had had a past experience with grace, that they are presently established in grace, but there's a hope of future expectation of grace. Grace with you. And so, friends, that brings us to the end of my sermon. Because Adam and Eve end up in the same place as you and me. If you are a believer, then they're walking by grace. And every time thoughts of failure and guilt and condemnation because they're sinners and that happens to all of us come in, they just got to feel that clothing that God had given them. And it's like, no, God's with me. And their inclination would be, let's go cut a fig leaf. Let's do something to earn God's favor and to be good with him. And the Lord's like, no, I've taken care of that. You don't need to do that anymore. Just rest in my favor toward you. God's not against you. He's for you. And He's come to give you life. Why don't we have the musicians come up? I'll just, we'll close it there for the sake of time. Thank you for listening.